So what I've always noticed in sport is often our timeline and dates are given to us. You know, the Olympic Games in 1996, we knew when the date was, when the timeline was. What I find in life and business, you've got to come up with those yourself. You've got to be harder on yourself at actually finding those. Hello, I'm Andrew May, and this is the NAB Business Fit Podcast, where we chat with experts in a range of fields delving into their world to find out what fuels them and to learn lessons that can be applied to running a small business. We have conversations about how they've adapted to new ways of working and navigating through challenging times. I'm a performance strategist and leadership coach. What on earth does that mean? Well, it really means getting the best out of people in business and in life, and that is exactly why we've started this podcast. And speaking of getting the best out of yourself, in business and in life, I cannot think of anyone better to talk about those two domains than today's guest. Drew Ginn is possibly the fittest person we've had on this podcast, and I'm, call- I'm talking a big call. We've so far had Kieran Perkins, Justin Langer, Michael Klim, and Wayne Pierce. He has changed and successfully transformed across sport and career at the highest of levels. He's been to four Olympics. He has three Olympic gold, one silver medal. He broke the 24-hour Australian cycling record. He's transitioned into leadership and he now works for Cricket Australia, heading up their high performance. He also has a secret skill that not many people know about, apart from his family and close friends, and we might even unearth that today. Drew Ginn, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me, mate. Good to see you again. <laughs> Good to see you. Now, last time I saw you was May last year. We were attired a little bit differently. Our clothes were a little bit tighter. It's called Lycra. We did a beautiful ride with Tour de Cure across Kangaroo Island. Now, since then, there's been the bushfires. I believe it's 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 regenerating. Uh, and business is regenerating as well. But hey, how much has happened in that past what, 14, 15 months since we saw each other? Oh, it's extraordinary to think. And uh, if you had said to me at that time that we would have gone through the bushfires, a pandemic, uh, all the stuff that's been going on in sport and in business for everyone, um, living in isolation, getting used to terminology like social distancing, wearing masks, uh, I would have said you, you, you're talking complete rubbish. And uh, and on that particular day, if I remember correctly, we had some horrible weather on Kangaroo Island. And, That's an uh, understatement, buddy. Come on, you <laughs> you spent your life in a boat. I was a, a, a runner <laughs> or trying to run, and even you said this is wet and cold for me. <laughs> Correct, but the, the difference on the bike is I'm going into it, so I get to see it. It's it's worse when it's hitting you in the face. When you're in the boat and it's hitting you on the back of the head, it's it's not as bad. So that's that's what I claim anyway. <laughs> well, you were into it for three days because I can remember we're saying this guy's four-time Olympian. He's got the 24-hour Australian cycling record, which we're going to talk about. Uh, you were up the front as well. So yeah, a lot has changed in that time. What, what are you doing? I'm asking a lot of our guests this, Drew. What are you doing right now to stay physically and psychologically fit? Now, timestamp this, you've just come in Melbourne, just come out of COVID. So thankfully, you know, the government has done a good job to navigate us through this. A lot of people have different opinions, but when you look at other countries, we are doing well. It's been challenging. So how have you looked after the physical side and also the the mental side? Yeah, I think the the one for me is, and I've probably been accustomed to it because of being an athlete, where just having a routine of activity has been critical. Um, I would not claim to say that it's been easy, but I've been finding uh, for any of the cyclists out there would know the Zwift setup, which is the virtual cycling space, getting in the garage most nights. I'm a bit of an, an evening uh, activity person. I, I love, uh, you know, having a, having a bite to eat with the family and then then jumping on the bike half an hour later uh, and doing an in, indoor race. So I've been trying to keep the regular routine of an evening activity. Uh, a lot of it is pretty intense and, uh, and I do that sort of most of the days during the week. Um, the other one for me is just getting outside, getting out in the sunlight and getting some sunlight is, has been really key. Um, and the other one I found, like so many people, my alcohol consumption was going upwards and my wife even said to me one day, do you realise you're now getting through a whole bottle of wine a night? So for me, it's the, it's been the awareness around realising that some of the things that were helpful and productive versus the things that weren't necessarily helpful and productive and just dialing the things down that weren't helping me sleep necessarily and, and recover. Um, and then the same thing during the day, just hydrating, staying hydrated, um, staying on top of the fuel properly, but uh, that physical outlet is so critical. And I found with the stressful work sort of periods, um, you've really sort of grappled with the idea of what am I doing sitting in my own office bedroom um, doing work? 
and, and not feeling the same connection to staff. So it's, it's been that intent to sort of connect and just manage those routines. It has been crazy. And you're right, if someone had come in, imagine if a consultant came in and said, you know, when you're at Cricket Tasmania or under the Cricket Australia umbrella a year ago, hey, there's going to be this global pandemic. We're going to be working from home. Everything's going to change. We're going to close borders. We're not going to fly. So get this guy, get this girl out of here. Who is this clown? But that's what's happened. Hey, interesting. And, and I love your honesty. It's why I really like catching up and or listening to you and talking to you. But uh, when the alcohol creeps up, it, it can happen quite easily, doesn't it? It goes from a glass, goes to a couple of glasses. Then, hey, darling, did you finish this? No, you have. And a lot of our clients on this program, Drew, were saying the same thing. Uh, well, two things, actually. Activity down and then alcohol and fast yep. food up, which led to what was called a COVID coat. Yep. And I, I, I've had the same thing. I think the one, the one for me was... And it was the recognition between my wife and I where we both looked at each other and went, actually, our drinking level, our consumption has gone through the roof. Like normally if I had a beer a night, whatever, that would be that would be it. But you'd actually have nights where you wouldn't drink um, because you've got so many other things on. But when you're at home and you walk out of, the, walk out of, walk out of that door and all of a sudden I'm in the kitchen, it's like, oh, I could just have a glass of red. Yeah, it's easy to do. So I think the, the convenience was a trap. And I think of it like the old analogy of the old frog. Uh, you put a frog in cold water, you turn the temperature up slightly, it won't get out is the story. Uh, put it in hot water, it'll jump straight out. So it was it was the need to remind myself, and my wife and I talked about this, was we had no other reminders. We weren't catching up with friends to compare. But it was almost like we needed the slap in the face, which was looking at the bottle going, well, that is actually empty. And we've moved on to another bottle. Yeah, And, and then you've got bottles sort of piling up for your recycling going, hold on, hold on, let's just, let's see the reality of this. What I noticed personally though, it was sleeping. So where I was starting to struggle was I was having later nights. I'm a bit of a night owl anyway, but later nights, not sleeping anywhere near as well and just finding day after day getting more tired. And so it was almost like taking the athlete mindset again and going, hold on, this is not how I would be better prepared to perform. So therefore I'm not doing my job well enough if we're actually in that state. So it took a bit of willpower, I must admit. Um, but now we've sort of moderated ourselves and certainly in Melbourne coming out of isolation, just looking forward to getting back to a, a little bit of normality, that's for sure. So the thing about this series, we're having realistic conversations with high performers and high performers have challenges as well. I did not think, and it's not on my running sheet to talk to Drew about taking out the empty wine bowls, but very <laughs> candid, but it is right. You, you go from bedroom to breakfast bar to office, yep. home office, and you're going to bar. Yeah, hey, drinks at five o'clock, pub next door. It is really adapting and and learning to change. We, we're not allowed to use the word pivot on this show. We can use the word pirouette or backflip, okay? so <laughs> And talking about backflips, I'd like to go back, wind back, where this all started for you. Now, I've, I've mentioned you know, four Olympic golds, 24-hour track cycling race, which we're going to dig into as well. But can you go back? Because I, I love knowing the backstory. How did this all start? Yeah, I've... I've probably been one of those kids who was always active and uh, and probably had a predisposition to, to sports and um, either had confidence or was encouraged, yeah, and I'm sure a bit of both in that. But um, really, I mean, the rowing journey started partly because I was sent to boarding school in Melbourne and my dad was worried about me getting into trouble down home. Um, but I'd been an active kid, um, never the best at any particular activity. I was just good at activities and, and able to turn my hand to a lot of activities. Um, probably struggled academically going through school, partly because my concentration went into those things that were more enjoyable or that I felt much more akin to. Um, but then sent to boarding school and after about two years, I think it was a maths teacher, Bram McLeod, who finally grabbed me and put me in a rowing boat. So I think what he recognised was you know, a young kid like myself who um, who had a lot of energy and I've always been described as someone who's energetic, passionate and things like that. Um, I was up for a challenge, um, but my first rowing experience was falling out of the boat. So, yeah, it wasn't easy, um, but I've always needed that. I think is I've just, you know, anything that I do needs to have that sort of challenge, either mental challenge, stimulus or physical challenge or the emotional challenge. And so rowing provided that. Can we just rewind a little bit? I, I haven't heard you say that. My first rowing experience, I fell out of the boat. You, know, you hear about the, the, oh, yes, the glory, yes. the world championship <laughs> medals, the Olympic medals. But so your first rowing, the first time ever you fell out of the boat. Yep. Yep, Brand McLeod was there. He he gave me some simple instructions, which was, uh, you know, whatever happens in the boat, two oars, right? So in a skull and the tub skulls. So not that I knew much about this at the time, but tub skulls are wider boats, are much wider than your hips, very stable, two oars. So you've got sort of the platform out there with the oars. So effectively, you can't turn the boat over if you keep the handles together. So his instructions were really clear. Uh, as a 16-year-old kid, 
I didn't listen to any of it. Uh, went in one ear and out the other. And he was teaching me how to use my arms first, then use my arms and bodies, and then use my arms, bodies, legs. So anyone who's been on a rowing machine in the gym sort of understands the sequencing that, that produces the power and gets the fan moving. So he's done that. And then as I started picking the movement up, I was getting more confident. And then he's gone, oh, I'll leave you to your own devices. And he drove off on the speedboat. And as he putted away, I just had this recollection of sort of going, right, I'm rolling out to the front turn to put the blades back in the water and I'm really going to give it some. And I had confidence, right, because I thought, oh, this is easy, I'm doing it. And then all of a sudden as I've gone out, the boat's lurched to one side. I've let go of that oil handle and grabbed this whole this one with both. And as that's happened, the whole boat's just spun over. So I was swimming in the Yarra water. Uh, fortunately, I knew how to swim. And, uh, and interestingly, I couldn't work out how to get back in the boat. So that was one of the things they didn't actually teach. They didn't teach you. And it was a great reflection of mine later on in life was they didn't often teach you what to do to recover from, you know, the, the issue of being out of the boat. Ooh, let's talk um, about that, so that boat metaphor in yeah. a moment as well, hey? Yep. Yeah. So uh, was that a pivotal moment? Did you sit there and go, stuff this, this is stupid? Because uh, you know, you, you're on the Gold Coast. So the Gold Coast, you don't do rowing. You ride BMXs, you surf and hang out with your buddies. Was that a pivotal moment? Did you sit down and dry out on the side of the Yarra then and think, hey, I'm going to have a crack at this? Yeah, significant, I think, because I was uh, – the students on the bank – who were rowing, who were in all the rowing kit and all that sort of stuff. And I was just in a pair of shorts and a, and a, and a shirt and a, maybe even been school uniform for memory. But having students sort of laugh or make jokes of the fact that here's this new guy that's come down to the sport and, you know, he's, he's in the water swimming, what I didn't know was that would happen almost all the time. Like the first row, the second row and all that sort of stuff, you'd inherently fall in. And the good coaches really understood that and they made it safe. But I remember I was on the bank and trying to work out how to drain the boat and a few people are helping out. And um, and it was the laughter and the and the jokes being made. That was the thing that really triggered my thing was like, stuff you. <laughs> and it wasn't stuff you to anyone specific. It was just stuff you. Like, this is not that easy. Um, and what I liked about it was because I'd come from surfing as a kid, as you said, BMX riding, all those activities that were outdoors, enjoying it. When I went to Melbourne boarding school, was I was really feeling confined and contained. So the ability to get back out in the water um, was something that I really enjoyed. And so rowing became that outlet while I went through four years of boarding school. And, uh, yeah, falling in wasn't great. But later on in life, in my career with James Tompkins and others, Duncan Free, we fell in, you know, once or twice every year, just doing stuff, crashing into bridges, you name it. You know, it was all a part of the journey. Well, I think two things, and it would tie this in with Olympics, but the next, or the, the Olympics that's going to be in 2021, surfing and BMX are both in there. So there could yeah. be a comeback. I believe they've got skateboarding as well, which would be <laughs> a, a kid on the Gold Coast. So who knows? Right here, right now, uh, you're listening. Drew Ginn might be making a comeback in the next Summer Olympics. But if we go to what really did happen, when you joined the awesome foursome, some legendary names, and I know that you had watched these men from a young age come through. And so when you joined them, they'd been the awesome foursome for a number of years. But, you know, some of those names like Mike Mackay, um, Green, who have I missed there? Tompkins as well. Tompkins, yeah. You're like legends. So uh, who's laughing now, school guys, on the side of the water? <laughs> did, did you have that moment or was it just surreal that, hey, I'm here with my childhood heroes and I'm now actually you know, rowing for Australia? Oh, incredibly surreal. I think the, the one for me was um, James coached me at school in, in 1992, so my final year in year 12. And, um, and what was really nice as a memory was – that year when I made the crew, uh, and, and it was this thing that stuck in my mind was um, having guys like that around the boat chair before they won their Olympic gold, right? They were already successful rowers, but you had James coaching the first crew. I think Andrew Cooper might have been helping out with the second crew or the fifth crew, one of those sort of things. Um, Nick Green was coaching at one of the girls' schools, Lauriston at the time. So on the water, you'd see these guys come together in speedboats and um, as a young kid, I, I didn't know the full history, but I became uh, very attuned to what was going on. And we got to watch the four in Barcelona, uh, local rowing club, Mercantile Rowing Club that I joined. And um, three of the members of the four were members of that club as well. And to see them have success after meeting and engaging with them and realising, and this is the thing that probably broke down the barrier, was I'd always aspired to you know, sport. I loved AFL, loved cricket, loved all these sports You know, as, as a kid coming through. Um, wasn't necessarily adept or doing them all, but all of a sudden I found this sport in rowing and then I got to meet guys who were my heroes and realised that they were just normal people. Um, and particularly for James, one of the things I used to always talk about was process equaling outcome. 
And so not only did you associate that they seem like normal people, yes, talented athletes performing exceptionally well on the stage, but it broke down the barrier. And then four years later, to get a chance to row with James, Nick and Mike in particular in the fall in Atlanta um, was just extraordinary. So uh, very much pinching myself sitting on the start line in in Atlanta. Um, Very much nervous about that as well, you know, not wanting to stuff up being a young member of the crew. I think I was 10 years there junior and uh, the selectors actually made a joke that particular year. I think it was for memory in Sydney, which was... uh, now, we're, we're excited to welcome you into the crew, Drew. You know, you're going to get a chance to row with the awesome foursome and, and we think it's great that you're going to bring the average age of the crew down significantly. So there's a good vote <laughs> of confidence there, right? Um, but, yeah, surreal in terms of just being with your heroes and, and having it so soon after the experience of being and watching them as a school kid. Yeah. So you have two kids, Kyra, 19, and Jasper, 15. This next question yes. is a little bit like saying, who's your favourite kid? And you, you never ask a parent that, right? No, no parent. I have three kids. None of them are favourite. They're all my favourite if and when they listen to this. Uh, but as a, as a build-in, what was your favourite race or what was your favourite moment when you look back, well, Commonwealth Games, World Champs, Olympic Games, school regattas even? Yeah, I've never answered this particular question well. Uh about the kids or I've about the rowing? Ju- <laughs> uh, about the kids. I've got a favourite. No, no, I've <laughs> got a favourite story. Um, no, no, I think the 96 for my mind is because it's your first time. Um, and so what, I, what I'd associate with favourite is just what's the most vivid, intense experience. And so 96 was just had no idea how it was going to play out, had no idea what was possible, um, dreamt of it. And so I think the, the the memory of that, the recollection of that, the intensity and the emotion of that was huge. Um, the come down off that as well. So you have this rise where you're sort of, you're heading up to a peak. And this is what I noticed about 96 was the guys always said, you know, they believed they could win a gold medal again. And it had been four years since performing on the international stage at that very highest level. And they'd roast the year before and come fifth and, being a new member into the crew. So you, you join them, but you want to believe and buy into this idea of a gold medal. It took 12 months to really understand what winning a gold medal in, in the Olympic Games was going to be about. And that was the notion of how do you all get on the same page is a bit of a cliche, I suppose. But um, it all was uh, understood differently from each of us. So we had our, our own ideas about what was important about it and stuff like that. So to have that first experience, um, to know that it's you're so vulnerable um, as a bunch of individuals, you've got to buy into the same process, you've got to be really clear about the plan, um, the quirky things that go on during races as well. Like I was told to shut up halfway through the Olympic Games final by James because I started getting excited about how we were comparing to the field and I was given the responsibility of calling the race plan. So extraordinary opportunity as a young so what, kid. What were you saying? You were you're doing a commentary. Was it Ray Warren? Were you having theatrics? And did not, you have the Ray Warren voice? Give, give us a, give us a sound of Ray Warren, but no, it, it was along the lines of Italy, Romania, half length up. We're in this, fellas, we're in this. And James goes, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I think so. And, but there were technical calls as well. So I was making the technical calls, but then just for this moment, it was just like I was just caught up in the moment bit of improv, you know, very creative sort of person. So I've just given this little outburst of inspiration and James is going, mate, just relax, calm down, <laughs> you'll be fine. So, yeah, first-time games I think is very, very special from that perspective, but obviously they're all amazing experiences. And probably what I would say on this is when you, when you embark upon a career or you dream about a career, to make the Olympic Games once is, is huge. So I'm very respectful of that. To be there a few times is just unbelievable. It's really hard to comprehend. But to have success over such a period of time is something that I look back on. It almost feels like a different person, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I think so. And, and with everyone who has success and sustained success, there's always hardship as well. And I know a big time for you, the, you know, the metaphor of the boat tipped over at 12 years of age when your mother passed away. I can't imagine what that would be like at that stage, just how to process that, uh, how to, to pick yourself up from that. So like, how were you at that age? What did you process? What went through your mind? Yeah, it's um, it's one of those things. I think my mum passed away with cancer and, uh, yeah, and it's, it's even just reflecting on it, it's a very sombre sort of thing. I, I feel guilty about it, to be fair, if I'm to be um, really clear here. So why I feel guilty is I wonder how my life would have turned out if, if she hadn't have died from cancer. Um, because I was living with her on the Gold Coast. My mum and dad had separated when I was younger. Um, I loved my mum. I loved my dad. Um, but she passed away. Um, and being that age, I don't think I ever really comprehended it. Now, I probably have never really dealt with some of the issues around, you know, sort of how I might have felt and all that sort of stuff. But what I do know 
is this is I sat there at the Olympic Games in 96 and my dad um, was calling out above the crowd my nickname as a young kid, Spibsy. You know, he used to call me Spibsy, um, and Spibsy, Spibsy, and I could hear him, right? So, and but it was as the crowd was dulling down, and I'm sitting in the boat, and we're doing a bit of a celebration. So we pulled the boat into the pontoon, and 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 why I share this was because it, it really typified, um, I suppose, the the feeling and the emotion of it all, and how it connected to my mum. So my dad finally burst through where the media were and, and and made his way down and you've got security there and all that sort of stuff. And, and I didn't care about any of the media stuff, didn't care about anything. And I could just hear my dad calling out and I finally got to him and got a big hug. And what he said to me was, one, he loved me, but two, your mum would be so mm-hmm. proud and she would love to have been here, right? And so as a young kid, you don't you don't get it when you're that age. And so my dad did a few things. One, I lost my mum. They weren't together at the time. I was living with her, so I wasn't necessarily with him, but he swung into gear to help out and be that great support. And he did a lot of things to give me a chance in life. Um, And why I say guilty is because if I hadn't have moved back to Melbourne, if I hadn't have re-engaged with him as a parent, gone to boarding school, got involved in rowing, my life could have been so vastly different. Um, And so I feel guilty that her passing contributed to that opportunity and contributed in some way to the success. Um, but I suppose my memory is really this, is that I've been driven for some reason you know, to do a lot of things, not just rowing, but also um, some of the extreme challenges on a bike and a few other things like that. Even in surfing, I've, I've always had a drive to push myself and get the most out of myself. And I, I think it comes back to losing a loved one when you're so young where, well, you don't cognitively get what it means. I think it does embed in you or imprint in you, which is don't waste your bloody life, kid. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of thing. So don't don't be at any stage in life and then have this happen to you earlier than you expect or also have you leaving someone's life like a child or a family member before you've said you love them or before you've given them that cuddle or before they know how they how they mean and all that sort of stuff to you. So so while I wasn't there when my mum passed away in the hospital in Southport, um, I'd come back to Melbourne and, and we expected that she'd be able to come down to Melbourne. So I, I regret not being there, but I also know that the way she hugged me, the way she cared for me, everything she did for me in her life was complete love and care and empathy for her child. And she probably let me get away with a whole lot of stuff that she shouldn't have let me get away with as well. But that's just what a parent does at times. Sort of thing. So um, so I miss her immensely. But um, I've also known that through what she did for me as a parent and what's happened since her not being here um, has allowed me to be the person I am. It's a beautiful story. And, and a bit about your dad, uh, goosebumps hearing that. And I'm sure that brings emotion for you as well. I could, sort of, I could feel it as you're talking about that as well, that it, it's real and it, beautiful words from your dad to say at that time as well. And, and I know obviously that story explains why you're so passionate about Can for Cancer, where we first met. I'd watched you on TV and you may have been on some ads, but I wasn't going to mention the ads today. But I, I know you are very, very passionate about the cause to try and find a cure for cancer. Yeah, oh, it's... Um... Again, I feel like I don't I don't do enough. Um, I make excuses about being busy, I suppose, in many respects. But probably what I'm proud of is being able to contribute in any way I can. Um, I think it's a responsibility of any athlete, anyone who's been successful in life, to to give back in some way. And I think you know, finding a cure for cancer for me would solve so many problems in in life for people. It's just one of these cruel diseases, and I, I know we can say that about many diseases and many afflictions. But um, I've seen it. I've seen what it's done to my family um, and I've seen what it's done to a lot of friends and, and close other family members and um, being able to find a cure. And if we don't find a cure, being able to find ways that we support people to cope with it um, in their lives or to cope with it when it's affected their lives or loved ones is really key. And so I, I love, one, being able to raise money. Um, I love being able to raise awareness and I also like being able to see initiatives that actually make a difference. So so one of the great examples for me was recently um, down in Inblock and we had an event and uh, and hearing from people locally who had a hospice and this just talking about what I think it was about $50,000, what $50,000 actually does for them as a hospice, being able to look after families who are ravaged by the disease, but it's the support for the family members as well as the person who's going through um, surviving cancer or fighting cancer. And so, yeah, very passionate about it. Um, my dad passed away just recently in March, um, mesothelioma. So that, that's, that's, I've had now two parents uh, with it. So, um, you know, for me, it's, it's going to be something I'm always going to be passionate about forever and a day while I'm still here. And, um, you yeah, know, I just like making a difference. 
your story so far would show that if you're passionate about something, you put a lot of time and effort into it. The the psychological construct drive or to be driven to do something, layman's terms, we sometimes call that a chip on the shoulder or the Aussie term is a bit of mongrel. Uh, and you've got that in bucket loads. And you mentioned the bike ride and I said that in the introduction. So can you tell me two things? First of all, the name Marco Ballo, and I've probably butchered the pronunciation. <laughs> and the second thing, how on earth, Drugin, do you sit on a bike on a velodrome and average over 40 kilometres an hour for 24 hours? So, Marco, first of all, let's go back. When did this crazy, crazy idea of you, yours come into fruition to take out the world record, which was the goal, right? Yeah, it was the goal. And uh, and admittedly, I didn't set myself up for success, to be fair. Uh, we We... Actually, I'll, I'll paint the picture here. So Marco um, is an endurance cyclist, but there's a few others. Christopher Strauss, um, Mike Hall, you know, who's passed away recently um, when they did the Indy Pack race across from Perth to, to Sydney. Um, so there's – I didn't know this beforehand, but there's there's people who do these things, right? And and it's awesome. And we've always had history. So, so can you rewind? Like you've got to – there's crazy people that do these things. Yes, yeah, correct, correct. Right, so, so – and good description, right? So – but this is also the human spirit, right? So this is where I come to. So then there's another name I'll mention here. So Jesse Carlson, yeah. Um, and and so what happened here is I was on a ride with a, a manuf- clothing manufacturer, Rafa, um, that those who cycle will understand. We're going to Wagga Wagga for a, an event called the Beers and Gears, first year of it. It was a rotary fundraiser where the local community worked out that if they put on a cycling race or event series, and they combined it with a festival and, and had beers and carnival and all this sort of atmosphere stuff and support the ro- local Rotary Club. That's uh, a great idea. So we rode from Melbourne up. Now, this is one of the first real long rides I started doing. And I'd done rides which were 100Ks and all that sort of stuff, but nothing nothing 400Ks, right, so over two days. And this guy, Jesse Carlson, was on this ride, and I found out that he'd done the Race Across America, which is a massive event, 16 days, solo effort to Race Across America, right? So you talk about extreme individuals. And then Jesse, at one stage, started up next to me, and one other guy, Alan Kawani, who was an Australian cyclist who was very, very good as well. And uh, and they started chatting and finding out a bit more about me. I started finding out a bit more about them, and they've gone, you should do the 24 hours. Right. So it actually wasn't my idea. Right. And then they started talking about the people that have done these 24 hours. And Marco Blau is a guy, Slovenian, um, who'd set many, many records on the track, off the track, open venues, all this sort of stuff. Christopher Strauss um, had just set the new world record. I think it was 194 Ks was the distance he covered um, on an uh, aeroplane circuit in Germany, which was just unbelievable. And so I started hearing about these names and started meeting these various people. So if it wasn't for... Alan Kawani, if it wasn't for Jesse Carlson, Andy Pike from Raffer at the time, um, I, I wouldn't have come up with the idea myself. But once they started sort of sowing the seed in my mind, it was like, okay, well, I'd love to have a crack at this. So shorter part of the story is we chose the Brunswick Velodrome, um, rippled surface, cracks in the surface, all this sort of stuff. But at a local venue, which was really appealing to me in terms of local club, um, Charity fundraising with Tour de Cure, so the ability to raise funds. I think Mark Webber was the biggest donator. I think he put $10,000 in. I think we raised $45,000 at the end of it all, um, which I was really, really proud of. Um, I wasn't averaging 40K an hour for the full 24 hours, so I've just got to correct that. I averaged 34.7 to be really specific, but I was averaging for the first 200Ks, I think 39 Okay, now up there very, very much. Let me pump up and your tyres. A- like, who, what, what's six <laughs> kilometres between cycling friends? So, look, correct, the, correct. The, 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 it's ridiculous to be able to do that for 24 hours. And you did 836 kilometres, or is it, it's yeah. point something, something, right? Because it's, it's in metres. Yeah. It's in metres, right? And it's measured on the track. So, here's the rub, right? So, the, the track count says 836. The Garmin GPS says 860 something. And and I was going around going, why is my average speed, why is my distance not matching up to what's on my Garmin? Now I'm not saying the Garmin's accurate as well, but it's interesting as to just the dynamics. So uh, crazy thing, again, one of the most amount of suffering I've ever done in my life. My neck was so sore. Um, my sit bones, everything was sore. My muscles ached. Um, great friends helping me out, feeding me, keeping me going. I stopped six times, uh, six times for a total of, I think, 12 to 15 minutes total stoppage time. Um, I remember at one stage standing on the back of the track in the dark thinking I was going to the toilet and the guy said to me, Drew, are you okay? You should get moving again. I said, no, I'm going to the toilet. And I said, no, you're not. 
<laughs> you not go to the so it's just almost like an illusion going on and, and and stuff like this. But it was an amazing thing to do. Great to be able to support you know Tour de Cure and cancer at the time, but also just to pull a community of people together to actually have a crack at it was uh, was so much fun. I don't think there's many people listening to this going, that would be so much fun. So we better fill in a few <laughs> things, like 836 kilometres. It's almost Sydney to Melbourne in 24 hours, crazy. But as rowers, you do a lot of cycling. So it wasn't as though you yep. hung up the boat and went onto the bike because you guys you are amazing male and female rowers do a lot of cycling for cross-training. A lot of you do transition across as well. Hi, we hope you have been enjoying this podcast so far. Don't forget that we have plenty more podcasts and content just like this on NAB Business Fit. Go to www.nab.com.au forward slash business fit for more content to support your physical and psychological well-being and to help you take care of business. We could talk a lot about cycling, but let's change gears. Uh, and uh, knowing it's Wagga beers and gears, like it sells out all the time. So, like it. Um, but it like was it. it was very important. You mentioned it was the gears, not the beers, where that idea came to fruition as well. So probably started in the gears and got planted in the beers. Now changing to small business, you've had some experience with small business. And at the moment, people might be listening to this going, he's this guy, you know, 12 years of age. That's, how do you handle that? You, know, you pick yourself up and pour it into rowing and then you go into cycling. But what I really like about your story is you then transition that into leadership and into the small business world. So what did you learn? Yeah, I think um, really good question. So for me, I've probably had some very good mentors over, over my time in my career, not only as an athlete, but also in, in business and in, in the work that I've done in management roles. So Edmund King was a Melbourne Business School uh, program director down at Mount Eliza, and uh, I got a chance to meet Edmund at the Victorian Institute of Sport one day, and um, I followed up to go and have a coffee with him. And what was amazing about this was, uh, you know, as an athlete, didn't really know that I had a story to tell. Certainly didn't think that my principles that I'd learned in the sport of rowing would be transferable. So that's probably the first insight. Edmund sat and had a conversation with me and said, oh, you know, what are some of the things you do that, that have helped you be successful? And um we talked about some just basic things like the goal setting, the review process, um, the ability to have a really clear vision and plan for where you're going, um, the ability to know how you've got to work with your team and understand yourself and understand each other and understand the relationship. Not only that, but also understand the connection you have to the boat or to the sport and there's history and there's results and there's outputs and then all that sort of stuff. So Edmund sort of turned around and said, I want to get you in front of a group of execs. And so what was amazing was to get a chance to do that and realise that the principles were actually similar to what we were talking. So that gave me a bit of confidence to go, actually, right, well, if they're doing that in business and I've done this in sport, maybe there are some things I can do in business. So we started out with doing a bike store, getting it off the ground. Um, we ran that and turned it into two bike stores. And the first one was highly profitable in uh, in Williamstown. And then the second one we opened wasn't highly profitable. So uh, a great learning for three rowers who had different business interests. One was very much inside the store, running the store. My job was really helping train and develop the staff and look for opportunities for us. And the other one was the financial sort of accounting side. And so we had this for, I think it was six years, um, these two stores. The first store ran really well, as I said, and the second store probably drained the first store. So it was a business opportunity. Uh, I think I put $10,000 in as, as one of three partners to help get it off the ground. We did everything we could to get off the ground with as little money as possible. So it was a really exciting venture that way. Um, and ultimately, we didn't read the market well enough when we moved into South Melbourne, so we failed. Um, and, and I didn't want the stress going into the Olympic Games um, in, uh, in 2008, so we wrapped the business up. I've also set up consulting businesses with others, and probably a, a little lesson here is you know, doing, doing a consulting business for five other consultants isn't always the most advisable way to run a business because you all love doing the work, but you don't necessarily like going and getting the work. And yeah. so there was a good insight there. But I suppose the principles for me, what I'd, 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 I'd harness is if you're clear about where you want to go and, and you understand the process of developing a plan and the plan doesn't need to be perfect, I learned that in rowing. I also learned in rowing that if you then work out where you want to get to and then you work back what are the immediate steps you need to take, that's what builds momentum. And, and that for me doesn't matter if it's in sport, in business, in life, it's the same thing. Um, the other one for me is then people, right? So the fundamental thing to make a boat go fast is a boat sits on a water by itself. If, if you don't have people in the boat, it doesn't go anywhere. So, But once you put people in the boat, it has the ability to drive and move and gain momentum and have real speed, but it also has the ability to be vulnerable and topping from side to side and crashing, potentially flipping, turning. 
So, so for me, I think knowing where you want to go, knowing how you're going to get there, what are the immediate steps? Also knowing that, you know, without that driving force, that energy of the people and, and the ability to connect and have that relationship and it doesn't work. And so I've sort of always talked in, in sport and business as to there's principles that are very much common amongst us. Let's talk about those. Let's use the sporting analogy around those. But then there's some other things that we do and don't have. So what I've always noticed in sport is often our timeline and dates are given to us. You know, the Olympic Games in 1996, we knew when the date was, when the timeline was, what I find in life and sport. Often you've got to, your life and business, you've got to come up with those yourself. You've got to be harder on yourself at actually finding those. Um, and the other final one I'll share with you here is we used to do training camps and training a percentage of time that was so significant to go and race six minutes. So we'd actually put so much into managing ourselves to get ready for six minutes. We'd have a team of people helping us, doctors, physios, you name it, coaches. In sport and, and, and sorry, in business in life, what often happens is you don't have that team around you necessarily. It's obvious. So you're going to need to work out how to build that team. But the other one for me is often we spend so much time doing the work in life and in business, we don't have the time to train and prepare and develop. So I'm always trying to work out how to get the, the balance right there. It's a lot longer than six minutes, isn't it? Anyone in business who's listening to this, who's in a myriad of small business owners listening to this, and your small business, it is the engine room of the Australian economy, and thinking, God, I'd love to have a six-minute race, right? You know, you could be opening up your coffee Correct. shop at 4, 4.30 a.m., fish markets, we've got delivery, we've got you know, consulting firms, we've got engineers, we've got builders, contractors. I've got two questions for you, two quick-fire questions on small business, and then I want to talk about cross-trading. But cross trading from sport now to sports admin and business. So question number one, when that first bike store was going great guns, did you have these visions of your listing on the ASX, having this multi, multi-million dollar empire? Did you get excited at any stage? Oh, definitely. I mean, part of the thing we had as a conversation was we wanted to keep finding the ability to open up more stores. Um, we liked the idea of being a team, building a team of people that uh, would uh, benefit from from the original sort of idea that we had. Um, and we wanted something for ourselves that would largely be a real passion project that could be not so much a passive income, but certainly something we could really enjoy and live off without it actually feeling like a job and a chore. So not so much the ASX listing, but certainly in our minds was, could we get to three stores? Could we get to five stores? Could we get to 10 stores? Um, and I think the, the real learning there was we didn't take our eye off the ball, but certainly when we had a bit of success, we thought it was going to be easier. You know, and yet it was actually going to be harder. And it is a bit like having kids. Mm. The first one's bloody hard, but the second one can be really hard. But once you've got three or four kids, then it actually becomes a bit easier because you do work out routines and processes where that, that momentum com- combines together and works well together. So, um, so, yeah, there were aspirations, but certainly we didn't get there. And the second question, uh, it's refreshing that you're talking about getting to a stage where you realise, okay, we've put a lot into this, but I'm going to go somewhere else. So it's not, I think the word quit is not the right word because I think a lot of small business owners can sometimes diversify, go in different areas, open up multiple shops, you know, different business strains or streams, and then realise, hey, if I go back to core, for you going back to rowing was a smarter decision. So what is your advice to people who may be really wrestling with that decision and, and wrestling with also... As a small business owner, your role identity is so linked to who you are and your self-identity. Yeah, totally agree. And I, I think probably I'd pose a question here, which is, um, and it's the context of rowing, will it make the boat go faster is a, is, a, is a simple way to cut through stuff. So I think it's 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 not just quitting, it's the sense of loss, is that if you've, if you've had something that you've gotten used to being a part of who you are or what you do, and then to think that you're going to cut that away after everything that's been invested in it, but the question of will it make the boat go faster becomes simple. So use the, uh, use the rowing concept is we can't do every single thing in training that we've always thought would pay dividends in rowing because you just don't have the time. So then eventually you've got to become streamlined in your thinking and go, what are the key things that are going to drive your process forward now? And then what are the things that you, you might be hanging on to a little bit? And so what we used to find in rowing, there were certain things about technical parts or training philosophies or, or ways of doing things. And even teammates sometimes, you get to the point of saying, at what point do you have to have a change in the team? You know, so it is quitting, but it's a sense of loss. And I think that sense of loss requires a bit of time, but it's also that little bit of edge in yourself to sort of go, what are the things you can cut away to find those efficiencies, to find those next opportunities? And any athlete who has longevity um, does change, does adapt, and they're not doing the same thing, even if it's the same sport in 15 years as what they were doing back at the start. And my rowing style changed. 
my training philosophy changed, my approach, my teammates changed, everything changed. But every step of those changes felt like you're either giving up on someone, giving up on something, or you're losing something, which is an emotional trauma for a period of time. And you've got to get over that and move forward. I think the thread that weaves through the conversation with you, or at least for me, the thread is multiple careers. So it's not like you just define yourself as the rower and then you have a crack at cycling and then you have a crack at you know, running a bike business in along with the cycling and then you have a crack at leadership with five consultants who don't like selling. You should have come and asked me that. You could find someone who likes to sell, you know, diversify. And now you have really gone into a different stream, albeit high performance, it is sport, but cricket. Now, you know, I worked in cricket for a number of years for seven or eight years. In fact, some of my friends work with you now. And one of them, uh, Greg Mail, shout out, he's going to cycle with you next time he goes to Melbourne. He reckons he's going to take you on. And, <laughs> and Mail, we go, no, no. Love it. Love um, it. But look, I know the culture. I, I had no idea about cricket as a runner, but I knew I could make them fart, faster, fitter, and more athletic, but I knew nothing about cricket. And I found it hard adapting to that culture. At your level, you know, I was a fitness trainer for sporting teams. You've come in to head up high performance. Has that been challenging to be accepted as a non-cricketer? And, and if so, how have you adapted or how have you got people you know, to, to buy into your theories? Yeah, I think what's been challenging is curbing my enthusiasm for what's possible um, and then also becoming informed. I think that's been the real key is rather than starting from the premise of I've come from a sport and I've come from having, say, some success with lots of other failures and going, oh, I've got something to to show or prove this sport. I think the difference for me coming into cricket was, uh, and I had an experience in rowing where I was head coach for two years and and was eventually, you know, given given the axe, you know, but, but what I ran into issues was, was I knew the sport so well and I was so passionate and so bullish. So when I came into cricket, it was like, right, learn from that experience by trying to push things too far, too fast was problematic. So coming to cricket was about learning, um, was about being respectful, but then working out how to challenge with some of the things. So I still feel like I've got so much to offer that I'm not necessarily being tapped into and all that sort of stuff, but I'm okay with that because I want to understand what people want and need and just how we can move the dial forward in certain things. Um, There's certainly people who are resistant, but I would say it's not a negative judgment on the resistance because I think they're resistant because they're doing things that have either successfully worked for them for a long, long time or or will work for them in terms of their interpretation of where they're at. But I do think that cricket's been one of those sports that has been a pinnacle sport in Australia. And so it's very hard for a pinnacle sport to look outside its own sport to learn from other sports, and particularly when you look at a sport like rowing, which is regarded as being an endurance sport versus a very technical, skilled sport. And yet I see so many similarities between the two sports, but I also see the cricket can learn from a lot of other sports and a lot of other sports can learn from cricket. So I like the idea that there's people coming in now who there's more of us now. You, you've, you've broken through guys like Pat Howard. There's goods and bads with all of us as we come in, but I like the idea that the sport keeps opening up to learning from other industries, other sports, and then using those for improvement. It has changed. I, I'm just having very fond memories of the job interview I had. Drew was with Steve Rickson, Stumper Rickson, who is a New South Wales legend, played a couple of games for Australia, but he was at the same time as Rod Marsh. So bad time to be a wicketkeeper. But I had an interview with Stumper inside the uh, changing or inside the training rooms at the SCG. And I went there in a suit and he said, get your tie off. Okay. Have you got a nickname? <laughs> I said, yeah, Maisie, I'm Stumper. I said, what's the job description? I'll change this a little bit for our audience. He said, well, come and do a session tomorrow if the boys like you. If not, F off. So, and I said, uh, is there anything else? Correct. He said, I'll see you tomorrow at 9 a.m. Don't be late. Six years later, he looked at me and said, are you still here? I said, yeah, mate. <laughs> it's the job description. But I credit Steve Rickson looking outside. He got David Misson. And, and Misso had worked in rugby union, rugby league, Sydney Swans, Aussie yes. cricket team, uh, multiple AFL teams. But that was the vision back then. So it's just starting slowly. So it's gone a long way to get someone like you in. And you went to Tasmania, uh, where I spent five or six yep. years. Beautiful place. You put a all-purpose training area up where we used to go at the domain. So I've got beautiful memories of that area. You had success there. And then you went to the Australian job in your first week or two. And you may not want to answer this. You might want to duck this one. Do you know where I'm going? You had a metaphorical bouncer from one of the Australian left-arm quicks named Mitchell Stark. Uh, fill in the gaps. <laughs> oh, do, you well, want, think, do, you want, uh, do you want me to? I can. I can no, stay no, away from it. No, 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 no. Never, never, never back away from a challenge. <laughs> um, no, it was pretty simple. I think um, put into context, there was not a lot to it. That's that's the first part. The second part was I was asked a question um, 
I think it was by a reporter after doing uh, the announcement around the maternity leave for the female players, which was a great announcement um, in terms of the ACA and CA working together to support female players. And um, and this reporter sort of said, oh, you know, anything you can tell us about uh, about um, rowing and what you're learning, all that sort of stuff. And I made a comment which was based on having conversations with Adam Griffith in Tasmania, who was a bowling coach, very respect. And he made a few references to bowling because I was trying to find out. And I said, oh, mate, that's that's really similar to rowing, what you're describing, like um, tall timber, like tall bodies, need, need to be endurance-based, so they need to go all day, but they also need to be able to produce power regularly and they need to have precision. And I was like... Sounds like a bloody row to me, yeah. And, and then I was watching their training, and I was asking questions about their training. I said, "Oh, that's interesting. You train so differently to the way we would train a rower." And then I started getting a bit of a harebrained idea, which is, I wonder if if they could use some base building, yeah. And then what I realised was that the bowlers had done base building and had done technical work and remedial work and building themselves up, particularly after injuries. But it wasn't being acknowledged in the system because what we were counting as data was their intense balls above eighty percent. And so they were limiting that. And a comment I made to Griff one day was, um, you know, like, why would you limit what you can do at upper end intensity? And he said, oh, that's why we manage injuries. And, and so the reference to this reporter was, yeah, there might be something we could learn. So they've just had a great ashes. This is awesome. But don't just review when you have disastrous performances. Review also when you're going well. Uh, Justin Langer got the thematic thing there. He got the understanding of what I was referencing. He was going, you're not having a go at Starkey and the bowlers and all that sort of stuff about what they're not doing and, and that they're not doing great jobs as bowlers and the coaches aren't doing great jobs. You're just posing the question, which is, is there anything we can keep doing to become and stay the very best in the world? So my thing was around methodology, was around measurement and data. Uh, I got copped it in the press, but it was just a little one under the ribcage. It wasn't that bad. You ducked away. <laughs> we, we now, kept going. Well, thank, thank you for answering that. And I was being provocative. But what that shows is that appreciative inquiry and, and what's happened with a lot of sports, it happens in a lot of businesses, when you get the same people in the same room having the same conversations about the same things, it's called groupthink. Now, the extreme level yeah. groupthink is when Korean airlines ploughed into a mountain in Russia because the co-pilot, because of you know, Korean, Japanese culture, very similar, you don't talk up to your authority. So the, the, the co-pilot saw the trajectory into the mountain but didn't say anything. They heard it in the black box just before, too late. That's the extreme example of groupthink, right? Um, but we're not talking about mountains in Russia, we're talking about sport. But I think it's refreshing to get different people in. So credit to you for adapting and evolving and you handled that question very well. So this next one's going to be easy. <laughs> Crystal ball in front of you because you, you're the master of going from rowing to cycling to consulting, bike shop in there to now high performance in cricket. So Crystal ball, where do you see cricket in two to three years' time? How is it going to be different? And Crystal ball, what are you going to be doing in a couple of years' time? Yeah, good question. I think, um, and let me just reflect on this for a second. So I think two to three years, my gut feel, right, and I'm, no, I'm not the expert, right, so this is just purely gut feel as an outsider now inside the tent, um, is that I'm interested about the formats and I'm interested about the intention that Australia has of being successful in all formats, but I'm really curious as to how do you do that with the same people, so, so what I've seen in every other sport, and I'll use kayaking as an example here and even swimming as an example, if you're a 50-metre swimmer or you're a 250-metre um, sprint kayaker, what body type you have for that and the kind of work you do for that is so vastly different to the kayaker who paddles over 5K or the swimmer who swims over 1,500 metres. So you can all be in the pool training together at the same time, but the intent, the motive, the plan, the way you execute is, is vastly different. So T20 format versus test cricket – I'm really interested in how do you manage the same player across those formats, and and we only have a few of those to be to be fair nationally, um, but even for young kids coming through, I think in three years' time, what we're going to be thinking about is how do we not specialise and think specialisation is cricket versus football, but specialisation is inside cricket as to what's it like to be a real power player versus what's it like to be more the long form game. Um, I think. The formats are there. That's there. Our aspiration is there. Um, I'm really curious about can we improve the governance structure in cricket? Um, and this is a comment to all sports because I think what's just shown out through the pandemic is the governance structure in sports that are membership-based sports is very crippling at times in terms of decision-making and smart decisions and um, and not having wastage time, funding and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I do like the idea that if in three years' time we have a new MOU being negotiated um, we have new agreements with the states. Is there an opportunity then to sort of change a bit of how the structures 
are set up. So I'd like to think that nationally um, we keep building on what JL's doing and Matthew Mott's doing with the, the national men's and women's teams. We have success, but I think there'll be more specialisation potentially inside those teams. And ultimately, I think there'll be longer planning where we're thinking about the next player coming through in the pathways, male and female, and really earmarking them for opportunities and series where they'll be at their peak for two, three, four years and how we how we prepare them for that internationally um, is key. So I think the sport will become smarter about the long term. Um, it'll be better about the specificity. And then ultimately, I think from the structure wise, we'll be smarter about how we spend our money and how we make our decisions. Um, will we be there in three years? Not necessarily, but I certainly think in three years, we'll be having more conversations about that to get ready for the future beyond. And what will you be doing? Uh, there's a good chance I won't be uh, in sport by that stage uh, in, a, in, a, in a management role, I, I think. Um, I think I'm the sort of person that likes to come in and, and make a difference, but also like to create space for others. So, so my gut feel is when I came to Cricket Taz, I always talked about having a three-year plan. Um, when I came to Cricket Australia, certainly through the interview process, I talked about having a three-year plan. Um, I'm, I'm in year two of that sort of process with Cricket Australia. Um, if I'm if I'm adding value, then you stay and you're involved. If you're not adding value, then I think you've got to move aside. And, and I don't like getting stale inside myself, but I also like thinking about who are my staff are going to get the opportunity to do my role, right? And that's a succession piece. Um, and I also like looking outside sport completely and looking for, for, for new opportunities. So three years is a long time, uh, but I guarantee I'll, I'll be doing something different or something in a different way, that's for sure. One thing I know you will do is continually refresh, and that's exactly what Matthew Mott, coach of the women's cricket team, and Justin Langer, coach of the men's team, do with their players. And that's yep. a big thing around burnout and player workload and media and everything. And I know there's a little thing that you do that not many people know about. You do puzzles, but I believe there's something else you do to switch off psychologically. Do tell. I said at the start, and people have probably listened through this and they want to know, what do you do that not many people know about? Ah, the big reveal. Well, I, I love my art and, uh, and and in particular, I mean, I love puzzles because it's a cognitive process and it's fun to play around with things and, you know, be stumped by something, you know, having to really think hard on something and have a blockage. But I love creativity. Um, I love doing stuff with my kids in particular. And if I had a, a life again that, that I didn't head down the sporting path, I reckon I would have really ventured into the art art space and either performing arts, creative arts, painting, drawing, um, poetry, uh, love all that sort of stuff. So my daughter actually, funnily, funny you say this, uh, about half an hour ago as I walked through the kitchen said, Dad, this weekend we've got three canvases that are sitting out in the garage that are ready to be used. Can we have a crack at creating something? So we're going to do a bit of brainstorming tonight. Um, we're going to pull out her art supplies, my old art supplies that are in one of the uh, one of the cupboards out there. We're going to get the three canvases and we're going to come up with some ideas and stuff we can do. That's that's an outlet for me that is extraordinary, but I certainly don't feel like I'm able to put enough time to it these days. But I, I like the idea of when the busyness is over and and you stop sort of driving things inside of high performance groups and all that sort of stuff is uh, you know, having a little shed somewhere where I can just go away and paint and draw and, and do all that sort of stuff. So for me, it's just an outlet. It's 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 an energetic outlet in many respects that I just really enjoy doing and being creative with. I've got the crystal ball here. Well, before I go to the crystal ball again, I'm going to pull you up on something. You said, oh, if I hadn't got into sport, we're going to live to 100 if we look after ourselves. You're not even yes. halfway there. Okay. So that, that's the, the, the setup for what I'm about to say in the crystal ball. So I can see it in five years' time. Get into the performing arts. Drew Ginn is starring as Peter Allen on Broadway. You can take over from Jackman, right? The, the oh, all singing, that. all dancing. I've heard that you sing terribly. One of the commentators in the Olympics when you tried to belt out the song. Yeah, we haven't got time to go there today but maybe you get some singing lessons but on a more serious note why not focus on art have a gallery in 5 10 15 years time is like when I say that what do you think oh yeah very excited by that sort of stuff I think the one for me is I've always liked how do you connect people through the explorations they do so for me sport is an exploration right I know we've got results and we've got outcomes and all that sort of stuff but ultimately is athletes expressing themselves and exploring how they express themselves through their physical and their mental capabilities. So I love the idea of combining some of these things. Um, I was speaking to my daughter as well again, and uh, the Jackman Gallery, uh, no Hugh Jackman connection here, but the Jackman Gallery just in St Kilda. And I said to her, you know, let's let's head up there and you know see if she can get a job or even help out. But I like the idea of places like that where all of a sudden you know that you can either curate or pull things together and, and have a community, um, but with a certain kind of theme, you know, something so. And, and we've got a farm down in South Gippsland, and, and I love the idea of we've got a massive big shed 
and at some stage creating stuff in there and just welcoming people into that sort of world and, and doing some things. So uh, certainly in three to five years, there's some there's there's a little ideas in the back of the head about some things we can do to, to bring people in. I like the idea, if I'm to be upfront here, I like the idea of how do you explain and share with people the inner workings of the athlete mind and body and feeling that you're going through, but how do you do it in a visual audio sort of way that if someone walked into a room or walked into a space, they go, wow, so this is what it's like. These are the associations you have with that sort of stuff. And we know there's colours associated with sport. We know there's there's feelings and sounds associated with sport. And, and I just like the idea of consuming someone with what's the reality of sitting on a start line in a rowing boat or what's the reality of having that helmet on your head and, and waiting for a bowler to come at you with a 150k rocket. Yeah. So how do you bring someone into that who wouldn't normally get to experience that but do it in an artistic way which is really different and creative? I'd, I'd be fascinated with that. I can see the glint in your eye as you talk about that. Uh, watch this space. Uh, I, I'm envisioning an extension of Mona Art Gallery. Have you been to Mona in Hobart yes. on the Dermot River? Yeah. So the eccentric David Walsh who started that, who's done wonders for Tasmanian tourism. I used to be his personal trainer many years ago. Uh, I, in fact, he told me, yeah, put me on the treadmill and go away. He didn't want to talk to me because I was a chatty personal trainer. So David, this amazing mind, let's put you in contact with David and we'll extend Mona to the Drugin Rural Victorian Gallery. Now, I know a high-performance coach has timelines, so there's so many other questions I could ask, but I want to wrap up with two. Um, when I ask you about what inspires you, what is one thing you can picture, or one, one thing you can think of? Is it a picture, a poem, a quote, a story, or is it a conglomeration of life experiences? Uh, there's, there's, there's one that comes to mind, um, and it's symbolic, I suppose, in, in regards to my mum yelling out to my brother as a kid on the football field pull your socks up <laughs> and, and that notion of, you know, um, a parent or a loved one or a friend uh, seeing something in you that they, they, they want more for you and, and, and they know you want more for yourself and, and you just need that, that reminder or that, 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 that sort of message to sort of, you know, get back on with it or, or get back re-engaged. And so for me, there's a symbolic thing around, you know, crowds and, and people and support in that regard. So, uh, you know, so it's probably something to do with my mum and my dad, just a, just a call out from the, from the, from the sidelines. There's a thread there, isn't it? It's visceral. It's the sport. It's the art. It's the connection going back. I can see it's it's in your DNA. Now, I've loved our chat. We could chat for a lot longer, but I'm going to ask you one question. Is Out of everything we've spoken about, is there one thing you would still like me to ask? Or is there a question you would like to ask me? Yeah, probably a uh, question I'd ask you, given the people you've spoken to recently, is there one common theme that you've sensed coming out of all those conversations that, uh, you know, would be worthwhile me knowing that I can then go and, you know, follow up on that thread? Great question. I think there's two. <laughs> Am I allowed two? Yeah, definitely. One is passion. Uh, it shines through when you talk about your rowing. It shines. So that's the past. It shines through in your present and it shines through in your future. So passion has come through this, whether it's real estate agents, whether it's recruiting organisations, whether it's small business owners we're talking to, other elite athletes, there's passion. And, and I think what goes with passion is what Angela Duckworth talks about, passion plus perseverance equals grit. Yeah, so when you're passionate about something and COVID comes along, I think a lot of people we've spoken to, Drew, draw on that passion and then they push through. So I'll put that collectively, passion, perseverance and grit in one. So I've really got three. The yep. second one, it's about this uh, learn, unlearn, learn again. And listening to you, what you were talking about with Cricket Australia, it's, okay, here's how we've always done it. It doesn't mean we have to do it this way. And even what you're talking about with your future progression, it's learning, unlearning, learning. So I think those two things together, it's passion and it's really good reflecting on this. And it's that ability to constantly learn and to ask questions, why? My nine-year-old Archie, God love him, but sometimes why? Dad, how come? Why is that? You know. <laughs> and sometimes I find myself making stuff up. Oh, thanks, Dad. Just to stop the questions when I'm tired. Of, no, no, you've got to nourish that. You've got to create that because that leads to you know, big adults asking why and challenging the status quo and doing different things. So they're the two, passion Fantastic. and that appreciative inquiry. I like that. Appreciate that. And I'll, I'll make a little comment about Ange Duckworth as well. Love her work. And uh, she does, I think, uh, with the Freakonomics guys, or Stephen Levitt might be the one who has the Freakonomics podcast, but she's regularly a, a person on those segments and, and helping interviews with, with him there. So she's awesome. 
I have an intellectual crush on Angela Duckworth as well. <laughs> now, look, thank you for your time today. I've mentioned it a little bit during, uh, but isn't it great to do an interview without mentioning the Goulburn Valley ads and to be known for something other than that? <laughs> uh, it's good to get all the way through an interview and not be uh, not have a joke about it. <laughs> Is this the first time you've done an interview where someone hasn't led with that or mentioned that for a while? Uh, oh, look, it's, it's either it's either something that someone starts with or, or I get in there early enough just to get out of the way because ultimately it does come up. Uh, and if you're doing stuff live with people, you can see people sitting there going, oh, pardon the awesome foursome. Oh, I wonder if he was in those fruit ads. And what you don't want is someone distracted by that thought. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose clearer. But look, I wanted to talk about much more than fruit ads today because there's a lot more to you. Uh, So thank you very much. It's been really interesting looking at your evolution, your learning, and watch this space. Go and get those canvases. We can't wait to see what is on the other side. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's Andrew again, and we hope you enjoyed that interview. Just a quick note to remember to please go to nab.com.au slash businessfit. We hope you really liked this episode and received lots of value, and we would love it if you can go to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast and click on the subscribe button. We'd also really appreciate it if you share it with friends or colleagues you think might also benefit from these messages. And we'd really appreciate if you can rate and review it. We love seeing your messages and love seeing your ratings. Okay, that's it for this time. We look forward to connecting with you again on the next episode of NAB Business Fit.